this morning. We have our uh, John Moore, uh, who is going to speak to us. John is someone that has uh, a very impressive uh, list of the accomplishments in his life, and I know he's adding to that all the time. But if you've ever had a chance to uh, do a deeper dive into all the things that John has done, do it, and uh, you will be impressed with the, uh, the new things that he's done. When I look at John and I think about John and his wife, the word that comes to mind is productive. Uh, he's got an, a, an amazing work ethic and has been very productive. Um, he's got a, a Bachelor of Science degree and a Master's degree in uh, counseling and psychology. He has uh, been one that has authored uh, some books. He has done, if you're not familiar with the Searching for Truth, uh, the World Video Bible School, uh, it's got a booklet, and it's got a, a DVD that goes along with it. It is some of the best uh, material available on converting people to Christ. And um, uh, John is the one that is the author uh, and the producer of that material. He began Bible Land Passages, in which it provides an opportunity for people to either watch short video clips and learn about important uh, uh, locations in Israel, uh, as well as leading tour groups to uh, Israel associated with Bible Land passages. Uh, he's attended um, uh, Jerusalem University, uh, worked on master's degrees. He's uh, continuing to learn to expand himself. Uh, he's preached for the Bridging Springs Springs Church just outside of Austin, Texas for uh, how many years? 18. 18 years. And uh, uh, just did a terrific job uh, there. The people uh, love John Carter so much for the good work they've done. And um, a, a lot more I could say uh, about John, but uh, then I would use up all these signs. That's what you said. So, yeah, sit down. Uh, Preach the word. <laughs> 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 all right, thank you. Um, well, I'll tell you, uh, the wisdom that I'm going to share with you today has nothing to do with geography, so you, can, you guys can relax a little bit. Uh, there's more to me than just that, hopefully, but uh, it is, uh, it's great to be a part of this school and love Denny and appreciate him so much and all the staff here and uh, what a joy it is to be here with Carla. Um, and, um, you know, we're a team, and I thank God for her and all that we get to do together. It's been my privilege and honor to be able to be around a lot of uh, intelligent, wise uh, men and women in the church. And uh, I want to share with you just uh, a few things that I've gained from them. And then maybe as we close, as we have time, a few personal experiences of some scriptures I want to share with you. But So number one, here's some advice that I would give you, and that is to listen to the wisdom and advice of those who are wise, those who are godly. So learn to listen to the wisdom of those who are older and godly. Listen to the wisdom of those who are older and godly. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. And if we aren't careful, we can end up making the same mistake as Rehoboam did. We're actually at that juncture in our class in the divided kingdom right now. We're talking about the fact that um, Rehoboam didn't listen to the wisdom of those who were older. 
And we can argue, well, you know, the, he, the, those who were counselors were trying to just maybe uh, placate those who were uh, the people, but it really had more to do with the law of God. If you look back at uh, Samuel, particularly 1 Kings 12, verse 1 through 15, and 1 Samuel 8, 10, uh, verses 10 through 18, you will see that really Solomon had been in violation of the law of God in the accumulation of armies and the building of these chariot cities and all the wives. And so the people were being taxed greatly. So it wasn't just a matter of you know, pragmatism. It was a matter of that he had disobeyed the law of God. And so I wonder if maybe those older wise men not only knew from a practical standpoint what should not be done in terms of decisions that Rehoboam was going to make, but also they knew the law of God. Deuteronomy uh, also, rather, typically wisdom comes with age. Job chapter 12, verse 12 says, Wisdom belongs to the aged and understanding to the old. Proverbs 20, verse 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Now, I have learned from a lot of gray-haired men. Some of them are sitting in this audience today. And even though they may not have very much hair, they do have a few gray hairs if you were to look closely. And I have been so appreciative of that wisdom that I've gained from them. But there are others who have been a part of my life. And as I look back over the course of my life, I'm thankful for men like my father, my father-in-law, those who helped to mentor me when I was uh, young in the faith. Let me share with you just a few things of these older men that were said little proverbial statements that uh, I kind of hung on to and that helped me. Uh, one of them from my father-in-law, and who was a very wise man. I love being around him, said a lot of great things, and uh, wrote a lot of great articles. But there was one real simple statement that he used to make a lot, serving as both a preacher and as an elder, and it was this. There are always two sides of the pancake, no matter how thin you cook it. Right? Well, that doesn't sound like any great wise statement, but his point was that as an elder and a preacher, you're going to hear things from time to time from people. And as you hear them, you may be quick to rush to judgment or criticism of that individual or of a congregation or of a school. But what you need to remember is that there may be more to the story, particularly when you counsel someone. Maybe a husband comes to you and he's, real upset with how things are going in his marriage and he begins to say all these things about his wife and, and you may be tempted to say, yeah, she really is a sorry scoundrel, you know, no good for nothing. I can't believe she'd do that. And his wisdom taught me that, you know, you're just hearing one side of the story. You need to hear the entire story. Proverbs 18 verse 12 says, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and a shame to him. Proverbs 18 verse 17 says this, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. So learn to be objective. Hear the entire story. Listen attentively. And, and as we borrow the words of Jesus here in this particular case, be careful how you hear. Then from my dad, here's a, a phrase, and there are a lot of them that he used. What goes around comes around. Carl and I talk about that a lot, and he particularly enjoyed saying that when he saw us struggling with our kids when maybe they were, you know, acting up or doing some things. And because he remembered how I used to act up as a kid. And so he'd say, he'd kind of laugh, say, what goes around comes around, John. But he also said that 
as a reminder to me that, you know, how we treat other people will end up coming around to us someday as well. If we're harsh in our criticism and our judgments of others, then you can expect they're probably going to be that way toward us as well. But conversely, the same is true as well. And that is, if we do good to others and we live a life of fruitfulness and goodness, then that's going to come back to us. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 38, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Press down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. Now, we don't do that, that is give, just so that we'll get back. But the principle is true. Whatever you do, the way you live your life has a way of coming back to you. What goes around comes around. So just remember that. In the way that you treat other people, in your marriage relationships, in how you deal with people in the church and people of the world. And then from a mentor of mine, Brother Norman Starling. Wayne knew him very well. He served under him as uh, Brother Starling was one of the elders there for a while when Wayne was preaching there. I've known Norman all my life. He just passed away not long ago, as my dad did. That was a, a real blow to us, by the way. It's difficult to think about losing men that you love and admire so much. My father-in-law, my father, and, uh, and then Brother Norman. But, of course, I, I have so many sitting here, and I'm thankful for that. But he said something that, among many things that I've taken with me over the years, and that is never join a party of the church. And he didn't mean, you know, the, the bridal showers or the fellowship meals after on Sunday night when he said never join a party of the church. He was talking about the spirit of partyism and sectarianism that unfortunately is practiced even within the church. We talk a lot about being unified and speaking the same things and let there be no divisions among us and how that God hates division. And yet it is frustrating to fall prey to the influences, to the pressures of those in the brotherhood who want us to just jump in line with everything they say and do, believing that they're the standard. So be just a Christian. Recognize that there are members of the body of Christ who are going to have differing views on things. And, of course, knowing where to draw the line of fellowship is always going to be a challenge. I understand that. But even if we do make a decision to draw a line of fellowship, and we should in certain areas, always demonstrate love. Don't have a spirit and an attitude of exclusivism that says, I don't care anything about them. I'm not interested in them. But reach out to them. Be willing to, to preach in places where maybe if you didn't preach, you know, maybe you would think, well, someone's going to brand me if I go to that particular congregation and preach this. Well, be glad that they invited you to preach there. Maybe you can do some good. I know Denny experienced that many years ago, sadly, a place that he had an opportunity to influence and help. But man, there were a lot of people saying, if you go there, you're going to be liberal. And so naturally, people after a while began to quit going to that particular event. And what happened? All the good influence in that event began to leave because of the pressure that some were experiencing. Now, Denny was not one of those. He went, and I appreciate and admire him for it. So when you remember that your allegiance is to Christ, when you are just a Christian, and remember that your allegiance is to Christ and that your commitment should be to be faithful to the word, then you won't fall prey to the mafia tactics and the bully techniques of toxic brethren who wrap themselves in the flag of conservatism instead of being clothed with the humility and love of Christ. So watch out. Don't join a party of the church. Just be a Christian. All right, so those were some statements of, of men that I had a lot of 
respect for. So follow the advice and the wisdom of older Christian men and women. All right, number two. Everybody's business is nobody's business. That, by the way, came from Brother Starling, and I know he wasn't the first to say it. It's been around a long time. But everybody's business is nobody's business. The point being that as a preacher and as an eldership or, or whoever, director of the school, and we say now, now listen, everybody needs to be here Sunday night or everybody needs to come to the gospel meeting or everybody needs to come and be a part of the, uh, the, you know, the work day next Saturday. Typically, things don't get done. You know, because everybody else thinks that somebody else is going to do it, right? So how do we prevent a lackadaisical attitude and a spirit of, well, somebody else is going to do it in our congregations? If you want your programs to be successful, whether it's a Bible school program, whether it is an evangelistic effort, or whether it is a ladies' day program, I don't care whatever it is, we want every program, if we're going to do it in the church, it's something that's important, right? It should be. So how do we make it successful? What can you do as a preacher to make it successful, to be what it ought to be? Well, I want to share with you what Brother Starling used to say to me, and then I got to looking one day in the book of Acts, I thought, well, there it is. It's in Acts chapter 20. But here's what Brother Starling used to say to me when I just started off in campus ministry. He'd say, John, you've got to educate, you've got to promote, and you've got to motivate. If you're going to be involved in anything, in anything that you do, devotionals on Monday nights, or you're trying to get people to enroll in the credit Bible courses there at the Bible chair, you've got to educate, promote, and motivate. Well, let me show you an example of what I'm talking about here. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Look at this sage advice applied or demonstrated, I should say, right here in the book of Acts. When Paul met with the elders of Ephesus, he met them there at Miletus. He had a, a wonderful relationship with them. And in fact, in those first few verses, recounts some of the things that he had done with those brethren and how he labored among them and so forth. But I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 28, how Paul educated the, bre the, the elders on what they needed to do. He didn't just say, now look, I want you guys to be doing your work. All right, just go about doing your work. Instead, he educated them about the importance of their work. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So he utilizes some terms that ought to you know, capture their attention. Remember who you are. You're, you have a flock. You are to superintend, oversee. He called them elders, or the Bible calls them elders earlier in verse 17. And then notice in verse 29. Why do they need to superintend? Why do they need to, to be educated to do what they need to do? Because he said, there are fierce wolves that will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. He wanted them to know about the perils and the dangers that lie out there and what Satan was trying to do to destroy the flock. So there's a principle. People need to know what they need to do and why they need to do it. So educate the brethren. Why is this Bible class important? Why is uh, this lectureship important? You as a preacher or elders or whoever involved need to stand up before the congregation and say, this is 
important. And here's why we need to be at Bible class. And here's why we need to come and be a part of this gospel meeting and this evangelistic effort. Spend time enumerating that. But then also notice not only did Paul educate, but then he promoted it. He talked about it regularly. If we just say one time, again, everybody's busy, nobody, all right, we're going to have a gospel meeting this week, and that's all we say. Then how many people are really going to come? Because a lot of young Christians may not remember. They're involved in a lot of things. they got a lot going on in their life. Notice how Paul promoted it, verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Wow! You know, what if we for three years promoted a gospel meeting, you know? <laughs> I don't know how well that would go over. But my point is, he saw it as important, and he kept after it. He kept promoting it. He kept telling the brethren about what they needed, particularly the elders here. And then notice, number three, how he motivated them. Look at verse 32. And now I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or peril. You yourselves know that the hand, these hands minister to my necessity and those who are with me. In all things I have shown you by working hard in this way that we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's motivation. Reminded them of an inheritance. Reminded them of the fact that there's work involved. And then look at this. You want to motivate people? You want to get them to change? You want to get them to do something? Talk to them about Jesus. I see that over and over again in Paul's letters where he set Jesus up as the standard as all of us should and said, look at what Jesus did. He was suffering, Peter said. Well, you're suffering? Well, look at Jesus. He suffered. When he was reviled, though, he reviled not again. When he was threatened, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 5, have this mind in you. Well, what was that? The mind of service, the mind of humility? which was also in Christ Jesus. Man, if we hold up Jesus before others, that's motivating. Here's the perfect example. Here's someone who loved me so much. And that's what Paul is doing. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. He motivated them. So educate, promote, motivate. And I would add one more here that Brother Starling didn't always share with me on this one, but I got to looking back in the text and realizing that this connecting yourself to the work and to the people, investing yourself, you know, pouring yourself out for this work. Look at all that Paul says about himself in verses 18 through 26. He was invested in people and in their lives. And so we need to do that as well. If we're going to be effective in our work as preachers, as, as ministers of the gospel of Christ. And then finally, number three, here is, something that I wanted to share with you by way of advice of a few passages of Scripture that had an enormous impact on me in my life early on. We know that all the Bible should impact us, but there were some that just sort of grabbed a hold of me and, and made me tremble, like you know the Haredi Jews who speak of themselves as the, the Haredi, that is, those who tremble at the Word. These made me tremble. And the first one, was one that I heard in college in a sermon preached by Brother Ben Mosley when I was a student at the McCarty Student Center at Texas State University. It was Luke 9, 23 through 25. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. 
I'm sure I'd heard that growing up in the church. But when I heard a sermon about what true discipleship was about, and as I was developing, you know, in my own thinking about things and owning my own faith, that grabbed a hold of me and said, John, you can't just be sitting in a pew. You can't just wear the name of Christ only. You've got to commit your life to Jesus. Be totally committed. I read a book uh, written by Jerry Jones, not the owner of the Cowboys, but was a professor at Harding for a number of years, and he had some problems, I know that, and, but he wrote an interesting book called The Cost of Discipleship. It was sort of the Francis Chan version today of, you know, that uh, he wrote uh, called Crazy Love. And I read that book, and it were just biblical principles about what it means to follow Jesus, and I thought, I'm not doing that. I'm really not denying myself. I'm not taking up the cross daily. What does it really mean to be a disciple? To give my life completely to Jesus, to follow him in all things. That was one passage. Here's another one. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Paul's prayer for growth and development for the brethren at Ephesus and really all over the world. How do you motivate people to change? How do you get them to grow? Paul says, I want them to see the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of Christ and his love. That they would be rooted and grounded in love. I'm convinced that if we would see the love of God, if we would come to understand more about who God is, that every day we would want to do more. I've used this illustration in marriage seminars that we've done. I would ask wives to you know, hold up their hand if they have a wedding ring. Okay, yeah, I've got a wedding ring. It's got a diamond in it. Oh, yeah, beautiful diamond. Uh, do you think that diamond's valuable? Oh, yes, it's valuable. I take good care of it. Well, how do you know it's really valuable? Are you an expert? Can you really, have you really looked at it? Do you know for sure that it's a real diamond or it's not just one that your husband got out of a, you know, a gumball machine or something like that? How do you know? So you take it to a jeweler and they put on their monocle, and they look closely at all the facets of that diamond, its cut, its clarity, its color. And he goes, oh, yeah, this is, a, this is worth a lot of money. I mean, that's what happened when I bought Carla's diamond because we went to a jeweler that was run, uh, a jewelry store run by a member of the church, and he goes, John, I've got a really great diamond I want you to give to Carla. And he brought it out, and he showed it to me, and I, it looked like all the other diamonds to me. I didn't know. And he goes, no, trust me, this is worth a lot. And a whole other interesting story, by the way. I, didn't, I couldn't afford that. So he let me work, and work it off and build some stuff for him behind his, you know, behind his house that helped me to pay for it in that way. But he looked at all. He, he got his monocle out and he was looking. My point is that if we'll look more closely at all the facets of God's nature and see him in all his glory and all his beauty, we'll spend our life looking through Scripture, not from the perspective, okay, I'm just going to learn this passage so I can better beat up on the Baptist. Or I'm going to read this just so I can have all the academic information and you know, wow my friends with how much I know. But rather, look at it through the lens of knowing more about all the facets of who God is. And when you do that, it's going to change you. Because you're going to see the love and the mercy of God. His goodness. His perfection, His greatness, His wisdom. 
It's just like Exodus 33, verse 11, which dovetails into this. It's a passage that changed me, thinking about Moses wanting to see the glory of God. God had already told him, Moses, I know you by name. I know you, Moses, but it wasn't good enough. After the things that had happened, the sin that had been committed in the camp, Moses needed a little more affirmation. And so he wanted to see God's glory. And so God allowed him to see it. And remember, he just saw the tail end of the glory of God. I heard a sermon on this years ago, and I thought, man, it's so powerful. He, he held him in the cleft of the rock, and as he passed by, allowed him to see just a little bit of the tail end of his glory. And what happened? When Moses came down from the mountain, the people couldn't even look at him. Why? Because he was shining so brightly, and he had to put a veil over his face. He'd been in the presence of God, and it changed him. Paul speaks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18, about looking with unveiled face into the glory of God and how that we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. My advice that I leave you with today, if you want to change, if you want God to change you, if you want to be a better person, a better husband, a better student, look at God in all his glory. And you will, you will be humbled, you will be motivated, you'll be educated, and you will be changed. May God help us to do all these things.